Some people seem to move almost effortlessly from planning into action, but appearances can be deceiving. It all comes down to having a process that works for you. I'm your host, M. David Green. Hack the Process is a show about looking at the systems and processes that we build our lives around to support mindful, meaningful progress. This show explores ways that people get past that pivot point, from having a fantasy to putting something real out there into the world. If you're ready to stop planning and fantasizing and start taking action, let's hack the process together. Frank Strona is a public health advisor for the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, who served on the Presidential Commission for the Study of Bioethical Issues in 2016. He also runs a private consultancy called Mentor SF, where he teaches clients of all generations how to use social media to share their personal stories and advance their career goals. In this episode of Hack the Process, Frank will tell us how he capitalized on his experience as a sexual health educator and activist when he went back to school later in life, how mentoring continues to play a role in his career, and what nonprofit work has taught him about bringing your own privilege to the table when trying to help someone else with a different background. Today I'm talking to Frank Strona, and he's an educator who also coaches on the side. Frank, how are you doing today? I'm really well today. How about you? I'm doing really well. And I wanted to ask you, you've got a few different things going on in your life right now. When you introduce yourself these days, how do you introduce yourself? What do you tell people you do? <laughs> well, it really depends on who I'm working for and, and what role. My traditional role, of course, is as a, a health advisor, and I work for uh, various organizations around the country and the government. But a lot of times I work privately, and, and when I work in my own private role, I look at myself and I sort of think of myself less as a coach or a consultant and really as a personal strategist. My interest for years has been helping organizations and new entrepreneurs and just individuals find a way to, to, to navigate processes for success from this engaged learning perspective, which is sort of missing in our academic learning. When we go to school, we're not really engaged. We're taught to memorize. When people ask me, what do I do now? I teach, I travel, I train, and I kind of stand into a place as a strategic support for individuals. So I know the word engaged is critical to the work that you do, and you bring it up a lot. Can you tell us what that word means to you? Well. Yeah, engage is crucial. It was, it was crucial for me when I taught college part-time. It's crucial for the work I do around health and sexuality, messaging and communication. But more importantly, it's, it's crucial for me as an individual and as a human. The people, the men and women who come to me, really are opting to take this engaged. They want to be active in change process. Many of us learn how to passively learn which is a redundancy I, I understand, but we are taught how to passive learn. We're given the books, we're given the list of questions, we're given the test. An engaged learner or the engaged professional seeks out different opportunities to test, to fail, and they, they really understand this concept of fail to win. If you're always successful at everything you try, you really never learn how to navigate. Yet if you fail, you've won in a sense that you've just figured out hopefully, and you've taken it as a learning experience, how to engage yourself for another opportunity. So engagement for me is multifaceted. It's on an individual level. It's on a personal level. It's how you choose to start your day from how you choose to end your day, how you engage in the power of your speech with other people. We often in the world of technology, which I spend a lot of time in, people do not realize the impact and the power of their words. 
a casual post on a blog or a side snark on a Facebook, people don't see the person. So they don't understand how that moment of engagement can hurt somebody or foster huge growth and huge opportunity and really nurture something incredible. One of the interesting things I just picked up there is you're using engage kind of in a dual meaning, both in terms of being engaged inside yourself with what you're learning and also the engagement that comes from interaction with other people. Definitely, definitely true. You know, it's funny because as I've been a front runner on technology in the computer industry for many years, sort of an oddity in that I worked in public health, but I have a background in technology. And we saw a lack of engagement from a human perspective, the face-to-face -face encounter. And I think people lost touch of how valuable it is. So engagement is inside, it's learning, it's mental, it's emotional, but it is an external piece of engagement. And that's with nature, with your stimulus around you, the people that you sit next to, and the people that you care about or the people that you respect. It sounds like something that you came to from personal experience. I did. I did. I have a really, you know, diverse background. I, after I got out of college, I was definitely interested in sexual health and I spent almost my entire career really helping to develop sexual health messaging around improving pleasure, improving sexual health outcomes, STD, HIV, hepatitis, pregnancy control for men and women. And through that process, I navigated into avenues where there were communities who didn't have any kind of engagement around these topics. And I really saw the value of taking my experience and being able to walk into a room of 50 or 25 or 200 and talking about what turns you on, how to make your love life better. But what I found when I would talk with people afterwards, those very same core activities were also the same core activities that were feeding them from a professional level. So people who were making less than stellar judgments in their love life, who were putting themselves at risk for substance use or not paying attention to, to stress or mental health, were also making decisions in a work environment at times that may not have been as noticeable. They may still have been advancing. They may have been good supervisors, but they weren't being stellar. They weren't really capturing the star, so to speak, of what they wanted to because they weren't fully engaged. So f being engaged is this process that I came to that I sort of was like, wow, where am I engaged? And at one point about 12 years ago, I had been working privately, doing a lot of work across the, across the country in both mainstream publications, the adult content publications I was teaching. And I had an opportunity to come to the table as a gay man and really work on some national level health agendas. And that was the moment for me that said engagement here is being able to stay an individual, to stay true to who I am, but also to represent at a national level different opportunities. So for me, engagement is constantly shifting. It's constantly different dimensions of, of who I am in the moment. It sounds like it's the sort of thing that would take a lot of self-awareness to be able to transition from that personal work into that kind of national work that has such a huge impact. Could you take us through the process that you went through as you transitioned into public work? Sure. You know, is it self-awareness? Maybe. I actually think it was being ready to take advantage of the opportunity. So I had been very happy doing what I was doing. I was doing activist work, I was writing for several magazines. I was teaching around the country, and I happened to be asked to come to the table at a community planning group that was looking at a citywide sexual health. And about a year into it, a person on the table, she was the woman who handled all of the notes and the process activities, their, their archivist, came up to me at the end of a year and she said, you know, what you do naturally, other people have to learn. When you're ready, 
And if you're interested, here's my card. Maybe you should think about coming back to school for a master's in public health and be this voice in a different level. And I was like, how do I do that? So I thought about it for a while and I said, okay, I'm going to do this. Sounds interesting. I really had never wanted to go back to school. I got my four-year degree. Actually, I have two four-year degrees. So I had combined them in management and information systems. And I liked doing street activism. I liked doing street outreach in health. I thought there's got to be something more you know, could I be doing something more? Because I wasn't feeling, I wasn't feeling that I had reached that pinnacle for myself. I applied to school. And in that same 90 days, I applied for school. I ended a long-term relationship. My father died. I got offered a new job and I got offered an opportunity to, to, it got accepted into school. So literally, in the course of two months, I went from a very calm life that I knew where everything was and I knew what my schedule was to learning about a new career that went from a small nonprofit to a large government organization, dealing with a back and forth East Coast, West Coast with the parents, staff, and then also trying to navigate going back to school for my master's at the same time. So awareness may not have been the best word because I probably, if I was more aware, would have said, oh, hell no. But I think I was really eager to say yes to opportunities. And I've, I've always really firmly believed that there are no mistakes and that even things that I don't like the outcome of is an opportunity for me to look at it from a perspective that I can bring with me somewhere else. That's quite a major transition to go through. And it's, it's so interesting that you went from street activism into government work as part of that transition. Yeah, I was lucky. It was a period of time where they were actually looking for people like me, people who had solid background. I think one of the, my biggest criticisms around colleagues who go right from a four-year institution into a, a master's or a PhD is that they don't have the street-based knowledge. Anybody could read a book and take a test. I am critical of folks who want to do organic opportunities that really are people-focused, so public health efforts, community planning efforts, that especially around populations that are marginalized or at risk or are left behind, the gay male population, lesbians, transgender folks, youth, men and women who, who are involved with domestic violence. These are often run by organizations, by people who come through that system themselves. So for me it was a real challenge to try and figure out what could I bring? Why do I want to do this? And at the same time, really be frustrated when I had colleagues in class saying they had just completed their four-year degree and now they were doing their master's. I'm really glad. And, and you know, in some ways it was a great counterpoint because oftentimes I learned from them and they learned from me. One of my best friends from my master's program we were talking one day and she said, what do you think you got from your master's that's different than me? I said, you learned about the theories. I learned what the names of the theories were that I've been doing for 25 years. <laughs> I love that. And yeah, the perspective that you get from working in something and then going back and learning what the terminology was. It's one of the reasons I, why I actually do so much mentor work with young undergrads and, and uh, master's students, because somebody comes to me and says, I wanna work a summer with you. That's telling me that they want to get dirty. They want to make mistakes. They want to understand what the nuances of, of business or health or whatever it is that they're interested. That makes me happy. That, that is a commitment of my time, but it also means when they're going to be so much richer. And it's more than just a certification where people take a test, which is I am definitely on the end of the spectrum. I understand the value of certification programs, 
but I, I've yet to find one that tells me how to acknowledge that you have leaders around the world who are working in fields that nobody else wanted to touch for years. They're executive directors, but they don't have academic degrees, but they're good at what they do. And they're never going to be able to compete because they don't have a degree after their name or they can't pass a certification. And I think that this is, this is the engagement process of value that I look at. And so that's how, for me, every day, I didn't want the degree after my name. I didn't want the letters. I rarely use alphabet after my name because when I'm at the table, I'm at the table with my experiences and my learning and my education. Now, I will own that that's a sense of entitlement. I get it. That's privilege as a white man. I, I have that. I've taken advantage of it, I think, as many people could would perceive. But I also know as a gay man, as a man who comes from not a lot of money, I have had my own opportunities to struggle. And I want to make sure others overcome their struggles, whether it's race, ethnicity, orientation, gender, identity, wherever it is, there are, are opportunities for them. I think when you come from a place of privilege, it's incumbent upon you to recognize the price of that privilege and to see what you can do about it. And I'm not great at it. I will tell you, I fumble. And uh, one of our, our classic jokes over the years is I come from an Italian-American family. As the oldest male, I have lots of privilege. And I do things some days that I hear myself say, and I'm like, oh, that's probably not the right thing to do. But what I have done and, and what I encourage people to do, and it's part of this engaged experience that I speak of, is I surround myself by people who I trust who can challenge me. So 20 years ago, I worked for a collective called Gay Community News in Boston. And it was a newspaper run for the LGBT community, and it was collective. And one of the women there and I used to fight occasionally in a, in a way. And it wasn't fighting. She was a very staunch feminist lesbian. And she wanted me to step up and I needed her to explain where I needed to step up without prejudging me. But I also needed her to understand the experiences that I had as a gay man. And it was really by the time I left to move on, we had become friends that many people didn't because she had she had a high level of what she expected from me. And I needed to rise to that level. But at the same time, I couldn't rise to that level unless she was willing to help me learn. And I think that's where people are afraid to have discourse in that sort of process. No one is 100% going to get it the first time. You have to fumble. You have to have opportunities to be forgiven, to apologize, to relearn, and to retry. That's interesting. That's a, a second story that you've told me about putting yourself in a position where somebody in authority in an organization you were involved in recognized somebody in you and then challenged you to step forward. Yeah, it seems to be a vein that happens with me. Some people could say that's because it's my uh, mouth. I tend to say what I have to say. But I, I also think it's my, my own ethics around work. When I come to the table to work, I come to the table to work. And that doesn't mean I wait for somebody else if I have an idea. I mean, I will give people space to others to share and to talk. But I'm there to work and I'm there to, to solve whatever we're working on. And uh, oftentimes that is the one who will then be, oh, well, how would you like to lead this? But, uh, you know, I can't complain. It's, it's gotten me great opportunities. Uh, you, you mentioned somebody recognized you and would encourage you to get involved in a master's program. Is that the quality that you think she was keying into? Definitely. That particular situation came after I had made a rather very specific and pointed comment about the fact that when you're looking at national health policy or citywide health policy for gay men, gay men have to be part of the dialogue. It can't be just well-intentioned allies. It has to be sexually active, gay-identified, culturally 
associated men who have sex with men but who identify as gay or who identify as same gender loving and that's been a theme most of my life is allies are incredibly helpful and they are part of a process and we're all an ally to somebody but at the same time those who are part of the communities these policies affect need to be part of the, the leading decision makers otherwise you just can't get it and I, I think my best example of that is I used to mentor a young woman it was about two months into her, we, we had a six-month mentorship. And she said, so what do you think? How am I doing? And I said, well, I think you've got the content down. You understand what you want to do. So let me ask you this. What brought you to AIDS and HIV healthcare? She goes, my father and my brother both have HIV and my father died of it. I said, okay. So I looked at her and we were in a very quiet place. And I said, let me ask you a question. Can you see your brother have sex in your head? Can you see your father as a sexual person? She had this look on her face. Now, granted, we all get that look on her face when we're asked to see our parents as sexual beings. I looked at her and I said, in that moment, I said, if you can't see him as a sexual being, you're trying to do a job based on an emotional attachment and fear of a disease instead of understanding the sexual being who is involved in the transmission of these opportunities. So, you know, you can't solve this issue if you can't see that there's a person, that there's love, that there's intimacy in it. And she went home and she came back the next day. And she goes, oh, I had nightmares all night. She goes, but I understand what you're talking about because it isn't just a mechanical behavior between two people. I said, you're right. So this is the richness that I got. It also was an opportunity to see that this is a beyond experiences. The ability to see things from the insider's perspective when dealing with that sort of thing. It's something that people who come from a background of privilege with, you know, being able to be perceived and pass as, for example, straight white male. In your case, as you walk down the street, unless somebody asks you, they don't see what you are. They see what you are assumed to be because you're part of the average of society. Right. But it's interesting. I mean, you, you, you come from strongly from a background as a gay male, and that's kind of driven the work that you've done. It has, although I have to say, I don't always want to be the gay man in the room. There are times when I want to be the professional who's a national expert in the room in whatever the content is. And there are more than just gay men's health that I, I'm an expert in you know, as a national communicator in technology and digital media. There's a level of expertise there that isn't related to this. But I think being able to have that opportunity is important because there are times when even if I didn't want to be that person in the room, I needed to step up because I, I understood that that's a voice at the table that was missing. That's another part of the obligation that comes with it. Very much, very much. And it is funny that you say that, because I do. I can, I've grown up in a way, I walk down the street, people would look at me and, and not get, you know, they didn't think, you know. And, and, and that's very different from a young gay man who is queer or questioning or transit pre-transition. They're going to have a lot more judgments, or a young lesbian, or anybody who's judged based on how their looks. And, and I think that that's part of where society just is, continues to evolve. I imagine you've come across this a lot in your work with nonprofits, where people who are not part of the community have come to try to help with the problems that they see. Yeah, and there's some incredibly successful people who do that. And, you know, I have had my shortcomings with some who come in and they want to help. And I, in my moment, do the exact same thing that I'm critical of. I make an observation judgment on them that they don't come in. It takes time. It takes patience. It takes really being willing to give them an opportunity, but also understanding that it can't always be about critical comment. It's got to be about that sounds like a really good idea. Let's see how we could explore that with a different lens that may be a little more culturally uh, humble. 
And when you, you meet that way, that's when you get synergy, that's how you get success. So there are incredible opportunities because quite frankly, especially when you look at city or federal you know, or nonprofit, you can't hire based on orientation or gender. So you have to work with who has the best skills. You know, sometimes that means those skill sets have to come with a familiarity with something. Others can be learned, but it's about having strong partners, strong advisors, collaborative planning groups who can be there to fill that gap. Then you get success. So it doesn't always have to be that person. And I think that that's across the board, whether you are a national corporation who's trying to make inroads in a small urban or rural community and people are frustrated because you know they're bringing technology in and traffic to healthcare to put you know the this whole dialogue that we don't have grocery stores in small poor neighborhoods so people are eating 711 grocery foods and I've done that too but there's no grocery store but at the same time the small mom and pop grocery chains aren't able to survive because it's too they can't afford to get to the the fresh produce. So trying to figure out how do we leverage those. And, and this is across whether it's health to social economics to, to food and nutrition. And I know that working in nonprofits, sometimes it can be like pushing sand up a hill because there are so many different interests that are coming to the table and there isn't really a, a sense of unification other than the sense of unified focus on some shared goal. And that's exactly what prompted like this last few years to really going back to the grassroots of what I did, one-to-one -one consulting with entrepreneurs, small business folks who really have an idea, who really want to change what they're doing. And they're coming from a different perspective. I think one of the most popular requests I'm getting these days on my website is a whole series of seniors who are wanting to participate in a political forum and they understand you can't do it by letter writing anymore. So I'm getting these really fabulous phone calls or emails from folks who are retired and they're saying, we need somebody who will come to our group or to spend time and explain to me what the social media is. I'm like, all right, what do you mean? What do you want to do? What's the objective? They're like, I want to have discourse. I want to tweet things out that are pithy and show my anger. I want to. So it's really fascinating because they, the catalyst for them has been, ah, I'm not interested in the Facebook. And you know when somebody calls it the Facebook where they are. Now they understand the power that they're losing an opportunity on. And so that's I'm having a lot of, that, of fun with that. Storytelling, the idea that people are wanting to capture stories again and record them. And then just the unique business owner who has something really important that they want to do with their lives and they're stuck. And they can't figure out, you know, they've got they've got their therapist, they've got their accountant. They've got their ministers, they've got their best friends, but they need somebody to help them strategize who isn't any of those, who makes them do the work with them and say, okay, we're going to meet in three days. Here's what I need you to have done. Otherwise, we don't meet and try to really get them in a different place. And that's really what is I'm spending a lot of time with now around the country doing. In that kind of work, would you position yourself then as the traditional concept of a coach? Yeah, I have to say I always, um, always am squeamish around that word. And part of that is I'm not a touchy-feely West Coast, in quotes, sort of person. I grew up in the East Coast. And in some ways, coaching, there are a series of types of coaches. And I had a real unfounded belief that coaches had to be a little too rah-rah and a little too, okay, this is the game we're going to play. There is. And some do that really well. I'm not a big fan of that style. I have a little bit more brass tacks approach. 
I like to say that working with me is kind of like a cross between Susan Powder, the, the former diet guru who used to have that shocking white blonde hair, and uh, Dr. Ruth. Very direct. What's the goal? How are you going to fix it? And let's move on or end. And you know, I don't spend a lot of time with the platitudes, and I don't spend a lot of time with games and using language like that. But I appreciate that that's how some people work, and they need that. They appreciate those trainers. And the first thing I am apt to do is to to explain to somebody that's not the kind of coaching I do. But let me give you three people's names who do that and do it really well. Being able to refer out to people like that, and also work in parallel with people who are doing that kind of work, I think is critical. Totally. I, I just finished a project with somebody. They came in to coach a vice president, and the president is an extremely alpha male, and he couldn't handle. They he they just were fire and water. So they, she called me and she said, "Could you come in and do some time with him?" And I got him. I understood him. It was about economics. And there was this moment where he was, I was waiting for him one day and he showed up 25 minutes late and I stood up. I said, oh, it's good to see you. Here's my bill and I'll talk to you next week for our next appointment. He's like, well, what do you mean? So, well, it's 25 minutes into a session. I can't work with the remaining 20 minutes of our time. We had booked an hour today. So obviously you have a lot to do. So we'll, we'll regroup next week and there'll be double the activity goals that you had hoped to accomplish. And I was in the elevator and my phone goes off and he's like, uh, and it dawned on me, he, no one had spoken to him like that because he was the main alpha. And in that moment, he realized you can't be an alpha and learn. You can't be an alpha and not hear feedback from people. And that was part of what was challenging in his business. And he said, could you come back if I clear my schedule for the next, the rest of the day? I said, no, I won't. But I'm happy to be here at eight o'clock tomorrow morning if you clear your schedule from eight to 12. And uh, he did, and and you know, because I at that point I couldn't, I didn't want to also lose ground with him. So it's about recognizing the kind of style that works. There are definitely people that I would rub wrong with my style, and those are folks that I would say I'm not the best fit. So I have to ask. That sounds like more than just a style. I'm curious where you learned this communication style that you use in situations like this. There are approaches and learning academies for coaching. Many of the work that I've done over the years, whether it be sexual health negotiations, sex and safety, psychology, other activities, have variations. So I use elements of all of that put together. I was an early trainer. I've been a trainer for 25 years. So there are different modalities of behavior change that I have an expertise in, and I've adapted some of them for the content themes. There are some really stellar coaching programs out there that really do this to the nth degree, whether you want to do small business, executive, sex and health, relationship. And they actually have names for their theories and, and methods. I use a public health spin on a lot of mine and have adapted them based on my experiences. It sounds like you've put together something that works for you and that also builds on some of your own natural strengths, although I have heard you describe yourself as an introvert. <laughs> yes. That's funny. I am definitely one of those folks who would normally say I'm a, an introvert who, who feeds off of power and people. I like to be in a situation where I can come in and have a moment, do my thing, socialize, but then I'm very quiet afterwards. And it, it took a long time for me to understand that that was my process. I could walk into an event, flip a switch, and I'm there, and I'm present, and I'm enjoying myself, but then I need to leave or you know, I've got to take a day or two to stay on my own to recharge. I'm not somebody who is a full-time extrovert who is always enjoying the being in the scene and being in the middle of everything. I tend to like to be on the side till somebody gives me a reason to, then I can do my thing and then I go back. 
But yeah, a lot of people are surprised. I, I imagine, though, that that works well with clients of yours who might also be introverted and might need to learn about that. Yeah, definitely. When I show folks some video footage of work that I do and they're like, oh, that's me. I says, yeah, I could go an entire night without saying a word if I don't want to. But the goal is I have to be able to take command and be social and do a cocktail party and get up on stage and make it feel natural and make it feel funny, especially in the content. I mean, when you know, you're in front of a college campus of 300 people trying to talk about sex and safety, you don't really have a lot of opportunity to stumble over words. So you have to figure out how to do it, how to be funny, how to also capture prejudices that people may have because of how you look. You know, if you come out as a gay man, then you can't talk about straight sex. Or if you come out as a, you know, from this discipline, you, you wouldn't be able to address another discipline. So you have to sort of know how to negotiate all of that. But then I got to go back and I got to be quiet and I have to do my thing. I travel over the country and one of my favorite things is I don't have to talk to anybody when I travel. I can see that. It's interesting, though. You're running this business on the side. At the same time, you're working in public health, and you were a communications analyst for the Presidential Commission for the Study of Bioethical Issues. It's a lot to keep balanced. How do you keep juggling all of these things? Well, you know, in some ways, the, the my time doing the work on the commission was a borrow. So I was borrowed from my division to help because they were transitioning and they had some some opening. And it was a great experience. I was so excited. I did nothing else but that during that period. I often say work, and a lot of the what a lot of what I do ends up being free because I feel that I have a salary. As long as I have a salary, I'm not going to say no to somebody. So I do a lot of work with men and women who are coming out of anywhere from 90 day to two year sobriety programs who are trying to get back into the workforce. Many of them don't have a lot of money. So it's work for me because that's how I value the time. I don't get paid for it a lot of time because I have a career and that gives me access. But how do I judge it? How do I balance it? I have very, I have to really keep on touch. I work you know, a four-day work week on one project. I take Fridays as often my day to do my other projects that I have a home life that I balance. And you know, sometimes it gets the better of me. And other times I just you know, go with the flow. But I'm a big fan about every, I would say every month or so, I do the 24-hour disconnect. So I'll go 24 to 36 hours with no telephone, no, no remote connection, no Facebook, nothing except my camera. Probably the first three hours, it's a little freaky, and I get very anxious. As a matter of fact, when I do give this as an assignment for my students, they do it over a weekend, and every student says the same thing. After the first three hours, you're not even thinking about picking your phone up. We put that pressure on ourselves to answer that text right away, to check those emails after hours, and realizing we, you know, unless you're unless you're in a position where your yes or no is crucial to life and safety, it can wait until your next day. And I love it when somebody will text me and you didn't respond to my text. Are you dying today? You were asking <laughs> me something for three days from now. You know, people are just accustomed to that rapid exchange, but that does make you tired and it draws a lot of energy. So I try and do a disconnect every month or so. It can also be a generational thing. I know some generations aren't comfortable with communication that doesn't happen instantly over the telephone. Well, you know, that's a big divide in the workforce. And I have had to do a couple workforce trainings on that recently. There's definitely an age where people don't want the phone call, just text them. Whereas others, like there's often, I will get an email and I'll just pick up the phone and say, what are you asking me here? 
instead of the email exchange. But there are other people who truly prefer the text. And there are days when I would prefer it because it's quick, it's easy. I don't have to put other effort in. But we're, we definitely see that some of the newer communities, the newer folks coming out of school because they've been raised with the community and the tools for so long are definitely more inclined to want to text than talk. The problem with that is, and this is what I see in their email communications or their, in their, their writing communications, they are not learning how to write well. They're writing as if they text and they're not able to see the difference. Especially with academic training these days, it's, it's so crucial to still understand how to write well, how to write a formal uh, letter or a paper and even an email because there's, you know emails don't have to be three pages long. If you can't say it in a paragraph and a half in an email, it probably shouldn't be said in an email. But you also can't say it in, you know, in 140 characters where you're spending spelling words like your with a U-R. So really understanding and explaining to folks, this is the reasons why. So I see that as kind of the biggest challenge in the workforce to come. Writing style is definitely becoming a dog whistle in our society. I know people who will judge a person by their age, depending on whether or not they put a greeting and a closing in their email messages. Greeting, closing, and the big one that was all over Facebook recently was the double space after a period. Yes. You know, there's definitely the age divide. And, you know, when we all have those, I mean, I, I have a style that I write, but sometimes I have to write in a different style in a different setting and relearn it. But yeah, definitely. I think that the experience that you had with your own career, starting off in activism and then later deciding to go and get your education, it kind of speaks to the way you might be working with people who are approaching social media as something new, who've had a career already and are trying to transition into the modern era. I definitely, I think that it does echo some of that. I mean, even as new things come up, I don't have time to learn them myself and I have to take the time. I couldn't tell you how long it took me to learn Snapchat because I don't use it and my friends didn't use it. You know, I had to call my nieces and say, do this with me for a while. But I, I think it's about understanding. And once people understood, then they could choose. I'm not a, and I know everybody wants to have every bell and whistle. One of the biggest conversations I have with business owners, especially medium to small business owners, is I have to have everything. Snapchat, interest, Pinterest, and Facebook. And, you know, I want it all. I want a Twitter account. I'm like, wait, wait, what are you trying to do? Are you looking for new clients? Are you promoting a concept? They each have a very different goal and some of them have synergy, but some of them, are you going to be able to handle the flow or is this, and, and really sitting and saying that because something exists does not mean you have to use it. It also speaks to the nature of social media. You have to be actively engaged in each one of these platforms in order for it to be effective. And that engagement costs a lot of attention. Well, it's definitely, it costs attention, it costs time. It's always fascinating when I look at my Twitter account and I read other people's tweets and I look at the folks who are originators. They're, they post original thinking based on something else someone said. But then there are the people who just pass it on. It struck them, it resonated with them, and all they're doing is they're just pushing it. And there are two different communications. And then, of course, there are people on Twitter who use it as a dialogue. They post something, people respond, and they go back and forth. They all work for different people. You decide which is your best. I tend to do a lot more original thinking, or at least if I read something and I tweet about it or I use it in, in a post, it's because it inspired me. But what really I think people want to know is what about it inspired me to share it. 
versus just sharing it. But you know, if it's 11 o'clock at night and I'm tired, it may be something as simple and hey folks, this is a really decent read, especially if you're thinking about X and I'll, I'll let the story of the article or the mention read for itself. So this is all of the nuances that people, it's very hard to get that from a book. So I know in your work with Mentor SF, part of what you do is you teach people how to be effective with social media. And I'm sure a lot of that comes down to figuring out with them what they want to accomplish. Yeah, it, we just launched the boot camp, which really is what do you want to accomplish? What are you doing currently? How much of your own personal privacy are you willing to sacrifice? <laughs> you know, there is this concept that everybody thinks that there's so much anonymity online and there really isn't. These are the questions that you have to ask. How often are you going to check it? You know, when somebody says, nobody ever follows me. Well, you haven't checked your account in six weeks. So these are those conversations. And uh, the boot camp really sets that up so that we can do it over the course of several days instead of making it drag it out. You know, we do it in, in chunks over several days so that we can go back and forth and look and revise and test run and then come back. Are all of your trainings trainer led or are these self-paced programs usually? because I have people all over the country. So many of them are very much in this format online through various technology tools. Some, when they're local, are in person. We're just getting ready with a colleague of mine to put together an entire learning platform where people can actually do it all online. So it's, it's, they can hear, a, see a video clip, put in a response, and then I can actually look at the responses, give them written feedback, but it gives them the flexibility to not have to try and meet my schedule. They can do it at night. They could do it while the kids are sleeping and they have access to me, you know, in a different fashion. So I like the auto learning. Some people do that really well. Other people really need that face-to-face -face or the, the human connection of in real time, whether it be through Skype or FaceTime or something like that that sense of personal engagement. And it's, it sounds like you're still very much personally involved with each of your students at some point. Yeah, I try to be. All of the folks that I work with, I mean, I, because I work with people in short term, they're project oriented, many times they'll come back with a new project. And you begin to have an, a rapport with them and a level of intimacy. You see them succeed, you see them fail. But because it's not like a therapist where you might be for six, seven years straight, in my case, it's maybe two, three months of intense time, they hit their goal, and it could be a year before they come back with a new idea, a new launch, or a problem, or something they want reassessed. And it's actually how I price my effort. The more often you do projects like that, I, I get you to this place where you actually have a smaller fee, so that you're not going to be afraid to call and say, could you look at this? So it's sort of the reverse, where some people you start low and you pay high, I let the people start their, their fees with me and they work down to this sort of maintenance fee, which is just to recognize there's a, an onus of time and, and effort, but it's not so onerous that they can't make the phone call if they have a, a question. It's, it's an interesting program. And I'm curious how people even find out about you. I mean, what, do you use social media yourself to promote what you're doing? I do. I have a Twitter account at FV Strona. And I do have a Facebook page for Mentor SF, uh, facebook.com, Mentor SFCA. And of course, I do have a blog on the Mentor website called Engage. And they're all connected now. You know, Medium, it's connected to Medium. And, you know, people can find me in any of those variations. And I do it personally. It's not that I want everybody to do it that way. I do it the way I do it because I know that there are different open doors. People have different ways of wanting the information. So somebody who's more interested in using Twitter will find me on Twitter. Somebody who's interested in reading blogs will find me on the blog. People who like journals will come that way. People who want to call me will call me. 
So I try to give people just like adult learning theory, whichever way you learn is the same way you can communicate. And it sounds like you do this almost as a passion. It's a sort of a side gig for you on top of the career that pays your, your bills normally, I suppose. It is. I mean, I worked privately for a long time. And, you know, um, times are changing. I'm getting uh, in a place in my life where I want to look at what's going to happen for the next 20 years. And this is sort of setting myself up to decide what's next for me. And in the meantime, I have the, uh, the opportunity to share what I know. It's no sense not sharing it. I know it. So might as well share it now. So I'm curious, how do you organize your routine then on these days? Because keeping yourself organized in such a way that you can actually get all of this done, it can be challenging. So technology-wise, if I find the right tools, I incorporate them. I definitely have some favorite apps that I use and technology tools to make my life easier. I use op tools, for instance, like Time Trade. I don't have to worry about scheduling. There's a place that I can connect my calendar to that people can go to and they can make their own appointment. They don't have to call me. If it's available, that means it works for them. You know, so I try to utilize what's already been done and not create, recreate the wheel. Of course, if people who know me well will also know that I still print out my daytimer calendar every week because I still want a physical book periodically to make notes. Although now, of course, with uh, OneNote and Evernote, which I'm a fan of both of them and, and some of the tablet devices, I, I do a lot more that way. But I still like that paper when I'm in a meeting to, to make a note. So I use whatever tools I need, but I'm pretty structured. And that was the only way I went back to school. Uh, my life during going back to school for my master's was very structured. I wrote at 7 a.m. two days a week from 7 to 8 before I started work. Friday nights was my reading and organizing night for homework. Saturday was my day to do whatever I wanted. It was my laundry, my shopping, my going out. And then Sunday from 8 in the morning until I went to bed was school. That was my life. And I, I learned early on, and this is what I tell people when they come to me saying, we're thinking I want to go back to school. Figure out what works. Talk to your family. Make sure everybody understands that, no, it's not. Every time I tried to go to a brunch on Sunday and work on Saturday, I didn't. it just didn't work. I needed to stay regiment. I needed, you know, my Tuesday night was, I think, oh, Tuesday nights, I think, was my, uh, was my, my first draft writing night. And because I, I knew my days were so full. So finding out what works is somewhat of the path that I still now do. And that's probably what you encourage your clients to do as well. I encourage them to figure out what works for them. It doesn't always work for everybody. There are some people who are morning people, some are night people, but some people are inspirational. They only can do things when inspiration strikes. So the question for me with them is, what triggers inspiration? And understand what the trigger is so that you can then make sure that you're not missing any inspiration over periods of time. I'm curious, the name of your organization, Mentor SF, has, has mentorship been an important part of your own life? And is that an important part of what you teach people? I, it has. I, I think give back is incredibly important. For me, I've had opportunity and mentors that have been widely diverse. So when I was trying to think of what I wanted to call what I did, the process of mentorism came back and I realized that's really what I was. I wasn't always wanting to be the teacher or the trainer, but it was the mentor, somebody who shares their experiences and lets you see what will work for you. And if it doesn't work, help you decompress and deconstruct to find out how to work it better. So I, I still take mentees whenever I can. And I am a big advocate for the workforce to take academic mentor, mentee process, whether it's high school, college, senior level uh, academics, 
or even within the workplace. You have a junior employee, get a mentor with somebody who's more advanced. That isn't their direct supervisor. I think it's, it's what we are missing as a, a professional workforce is more mentor systems. It probably ties into those times when people have recognized you and pushed you to go forward. I'm curious about the mentors in your life. Who, who has been an important guiding force in your life? Well, you know, there's a bunches and they, they realm from uh, Dr. Kathleen Roche, who's the former chair of Department of Health Science at San Jose State and a colleague in community planning. Dr. Stephen Tierney is someone I worked with in a, mo- a variety of levels. But then there are writers, activists, people like Eric Rofis. Uh, Eric and I worked together at Gay Community News and then came to San Francisco. He came just before I did and we worked on several men's activities. So, But the person I see every day who shows up can be a mentor to me. You know, I, I don't look at mentors based on their success. I, I look at a mentor as somebody who's showing up. Uh, Tez Anderson is, is somebody I, I think is impressing me so much. He sat down several years ago and really looked at that we're in a society where now men and women with HIV are not only living, they're thriving, they're succeeding, and they need to be looked at as an opportunity. And, and, and some of the, the struggles of what's happening with that, and he put together an organization of AIDS survivor syndrome, and he really, and he has, has just brought this awareness to this so strong that I look at that and I'm so impressed. And I'm like, that's what I see as a mentor. Do I talk to him about it? No. Have I gone to his events to talk with him? And let my voice sure, but I look at him and going that, that he he saw a need and he's just focused on it and and it's so impressive. So I see mentors everywhere. It sounds very inspiring. So if people want to work with you, where can they find out about your programs and your courses? Sure, they the easiest way is to go to mentorsf.com. Check the website. You'll see that there are various places on there. Try to make it easy and linkable under services, it will tell you what's available. What I tell most people is read around, get a feel, and then just either pick up the phone or send me an email and say, let's talk. Because most of the work that I do with people is customized. It isn't always reflected on the website because so much of it is customized. They can also, if they're a big Facebook user, they can come to the mentor page at facebook.com slash mentor SFCA and check me out there. Fantastic. Frank, thank you so much for taking the time to share with us today. Welcome. So I'm so happy to, to spend some time. Are you glad you listened to this episode of Hack the Process? Then take an action now. Make a note about something you just heard and how it's going to help you as you hack your own process. And let me know about it. This has been M. David Green, your host for Hack the Process. You can tweet me at Hack the Process, leave a review for the show on iTunes, and visit hacktheprocess.com to check out the show notes for this episode and join our community of process hackers. Thanks for listening.